Let's turn in our Bibles tonight, if you would, to Psalm 139. So good to see each of you here this evening. It's a nice thing to be able to come to the house of the Lord in the middle of the week, isn't it? Refocus your attention a little bit and put aside the cares of the world for a few minutes as we look to the perfect law of liberty and see what God has for us. Psalm 139 in my opinion, is one of the most encouraging song, psalms, songs, and is so well-known. It's one of the more well-known psalms, one of those that is often referenced. Tonight, as we prepare to read Psalm 139, I'm going to be speaking tonight about this subject, Searched and Known. Psalm 139, let's look at verse 1. We'll read the entire psalm. The scripture says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain." Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting." May God add his blessing to the reading of his word tonight, and as we study Psalm 139, may our hearts be encouraged by the thought that our God has searched us and known us. 
I've divided the psalm into four sections for our study tonight. First of all, the first six verses, we'll look at this truth that the Lord knows me. In verses 7 to 12, we'll look at the truth that the Lord is with me. Verses 13 through 18, the Lord has made me. And verses 19 through 24, the Lord will judge me. First of all, verses 1 through 6, the Lord knows me. The psalmist, we presume here, is David, as it's indicated in the historical note. This is addressed to the chief musician. Obviously, it's intended for the worship in the house of God. And the psalmist cries out with these words, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. The idea of the word searched is to know someone or to examine them intimately. It's the idea of knowing every single little detail, every small part. It's the idea that you are known by God or he has looked very carefully at every part of your life. Tonight, understand with me that there is not one thing that Jehovah does not know about you. He knows about things that you've forgotten about. He knows you better than you know yourself, which is why the psalmist says that not only has Jehovah searched him, but also, he says, and known me. And that idea of being known, I would suggest to you, is one of the greatest needs of man. God has made us as individuals not to be alone, but he has made us to need relationship, to uh, be in a place where we need to have fellowship with others. The, the person who can be completely apart and away from other human beings for extended periods of time without going uh, crazy is a pretty unique person, actually. Very few people can, can fit that because there's a desire within us to be known. And it is a wonderfully fulfilling thing to know that we are completely known by the God who has made us. He knows everything about us. And I'm going to add this here at the beginning because it's pertinent to our study. In spite of the fact that he knows everything about us, he knows all of our dirty laundry. He still loves us. He still cares about us. So he has searched me and known me. Then he goes on in the following verses talking about the kinds of things that God knows that he has searched and known. For instance, in verse 2, he says, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Do you remember how many times you sat down and stood up today? I lost track. I don't remember how many times or in how many places I found a place to sit. I know for a little while I sat in a chair in my office. I know for a little while I sat in my car. I know for a little while I sat in a chair on the front porch. I know for a little while I sat at a table while I had some dinner. But I think I probably forgot some places. I forgot how many times I sat down and got up. But God, He, he knows my downsitting and my uprising. He knows my actions. And that's the idea of this statement. He knows everything that I have done. He knows everything that I'm involved in. He was observing all day long and he saw everything that I involved my life in, all the actions that I took, all of the deeds that I was involved in. 
But not only does he know my action, it says in verse 2, thou understandest my thought afar off. Not only does he know everything that I have done, but he completely understands my thought process. Now, I don't know about you, but half the time, I don't understand my thought process. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, now, why am I doing this? Does that ever happen to anybody? Sometimes the secretaries get a great deal of joy out of this. I show up in the office, and I just look at them, and they say, like, what? I don't know. I came here for something, and I can't remember why. So, of course, the only remedy is to return back to where I came from, and then it'll strike me, and then I'll have to return to do whatever it was that I had come there to do. You know, God knows everything that we're doing, but he also knows all the reasons why we're doing it. He knows our thought processes. And the idea here, and he's developing this all the way through the psalm, there is nothing that we can hide from God. He knows our heart motive. He knows our thought process. In verse 3, God is described as compassing my path and my lying down. He is acquainted with all my ways. In other words, God thoroughly knows my course of life. He knows exactly what I am pursuing, the the path that is spoken of in verse 3, and the ways. These are two very similar words that refer to my course of life, the the way that I am going, the, the direction that I'm headed with my life. Did you ever look at someone and just from their actions and the way that they talk, you are able to deduce this is where they're headed. This is what's going on in their life. But conversely, have you ever looked at someone and thought you knew where they were headed and then been completely surprised by the choices that came later on? But this never happens to God because he is thoroughly acquainted with our ways. He knows our path. He knows our choices. He knows our direction. He's never caught by surprise, and he's never inattentive to the path that my life is taking. Now, this is, of course, as with most of the statements in this psalm, this is a point of accountability before God. So there's an element of fear, but there is also in this a a wonderful truth that God knows where I'm going. And sometimes I'm trying to figure out, now, where am I going? Where, where is this going to end up? I, I've embarked on this path. I've made this decision. I, I believe this is what God wants, but where does this end and where is it going? And he knows. He's thoroughly acquainted with it. And not only does he compass my path, but he also compasses my lying down. And, and that's, you know, if, if my path is the direction that I'm taking, my lying down. Well, that's the part of me that is inactive. That's the part of me that is at rest. I'm reading a very interesting book right now about why we sleep, written by a scientist, a a medical doctor, who has studied sleep in human beings. And, of course, he's writing from an unsaved perspective, a a scientist, someone who doesn't appreciate the, the... ability of God to create. And I'm reading the book and all the things that he's talking about through the eyes of someone who believes in the creator. And it's amazing what happens to us when we sleep. God made us to require rest. 
Sometimes we get frustrated. Uh, You know, if I didn't have to rest so much, if I didn't have to sleep a few hours every night, I could get so much more done. But God made you to need that kind of sleep. And actually, because he never sleeps, he compasses our lying down. And there's great consolation in that. There's a truth that when you go to sleep, you surrender everything to him. There's not a thing that you can do about anything while you are sleeping. You leave it in his hands. And we need to get to that place frequently in our lives. I think maybe that's why God has us do that every day. He thoroughly knows my ways. But then in verse 4, talking about how the Lord knows me, there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. He is aware of every word that I speak. Sometimes <clears throat> sometimes people say, do you remember what the pastor preached on Sunday? You weren't listening. If you don't remember, I'll tell you a secret. Sometimes I don't remember what I preached on Sunday. <laughs> sometimes people will say something to me about the message on Sunday and I have to think, what did I preach on? I don't remember. That was a, that was a couple days ago, you know. But God, he knows every word that I speak. He knows all the idle words. Not only does he know the words, but he knows the intention behind those words. Every single word that comes off of my tongue, God is observing. He he knows. Not only does he know it, he knows it all together. He knows every part of it. He knows why it was said. He knows what it accomplished. He knows the the effects that are coming from that speech. You see, he knows every word. He thoroughly knows me. In verse 5, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. And this is the idea of God. I like to picture it this way. It's like he puts bumpers on my life. You know, you have bumpers on your car to protect the more important parts of your car from impacts. And those bumpers are designed to absorb the impacts that might come if you back up into something by accident or if someone uh, bumps into you in traffic to absorb those that that impact. Now, notice it says the Lord has beset me before and behind. And the idea is that he's put put parameters around my life. These are like protections. Uh, It's the idea that God is keeping me and he's involved in the circumstances of my life, that that he is present. And there's going to be more of this developed throughout the psalm as we look forward uh, into the next sections. But understand that God is involved in the lives of his people. He's always present. He's always working. Many times, he's protecting us from things that we don't even know were a danger. Many times, he's removing influences from us that uh, we didn't even know would be present or that we didn't know to be afraid of. But our God is compassing us. He's, He's watching over us. And the psalmist concludes this section... In verse 6, which with this thought, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. The knowledge that God is present in our lives and that he knows us intimately and that he's always working in our lives is something that is beyond our comprehension. 
Now, he's going to say more things in Psalm 139 that are beyond our comprehension. And the intention of this psalm is for us to worship and to marvel at the incomprehensibility of our God. To to recognize the fact that he ought to be worshipped. He ought to be worshipped because he knows us. You say, well, nobody really knows me. Well, there's at least one who knows you. The Lord knows you very well. And you can thank God for that. You can praise Him. Second of all, not only does the Lord know me, but the Lord is with me. In verse 7, and he had begun speaking about this in verse 5 already, but in verse 7 he asked this question, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? And obviously, this is a rhetorical question. It's a, it's a question that answers itself. The answer is obvious. There's nowhere that you can go and get away from God. And I could remind you that there are some individuals in the Bible who tried. For instance, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they tried to hide from God. They tried to get to a place where God couldn't find them. But God very patiently came looking for them, And eventually they came out, not because God didn't know where they were, but because God was patiently waiting for them to come back to him. Jonah, the prophet, tried to get away from God. He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, and he found that there was no escape from the presence of God, that there was nowhere that he could get away from the Lord. Even when they cast him into the ocean, and he went down into the waters, and he thought, I'm free from the job that God gave me to do. God had other plans, preserved his life, brought him to his senses, and then sent him back to work. You see, there's nowhere that you can flee from God. This is both a comfort to us. As a child of God, it should be a comfort to us. But there is also a a heavy sense of an accountability, isn't there? To know that I cannot escape from God. That wherever I go, He is there. The darkest place on this earth. The most sin-filled place of depravity. God's presence is there. I remember a man one time who got saved. And one of the first things that got his attention was he was in a club at a party. And at that party, a prostitute shoved a gospel tract in his hand and said, hey, you probably need this. And he read that tract, and God started to stir in his heart. You'd say, could God work in a place like that? Well, evidently he does. He's there. You can't get away from God. There's nowhere that you can flee from the Lord. Now, you'll notice that he asks this question, and then in verse 8, he makes a statement. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. That, that stands to reason, doesn't it? If you go to heaven, the Lord is there. That's his domain. That's the place where he resides. That's, that, that's his place, heaven. Now, this could speak about the third heaven, the presence of God. And sometimes this word heaven is used to refer to the firmament, to the, to the what we might call 
the, the atmosphere or near space, the idea of getting out of this earth and, and being in this place, in this realm, God is there. Then he says, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If we take this to refer literally to the place of judgment, let me remind you that though hell is a place where sinners are separated from fellowship with God, it is a place where God's judging hand is felt. You can't escape from God by going to hell. I think a lot of sinners today think they would like to go to hell so they could escape from the hand of God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it tells us that there will be a time when people will go out and cry to the rocks and ask the rocks to fall on them so that they can escape from God. But they're not going to be able to escape from Him. You can't flee from Him. Sometimes this idea of hell refers to the domain of those who have died It is sometimes used to refer to the deepest places of the earth. And certainly, no matter where we go, God is there. You can't get away from Him. If you think that you can run from God and leave Him behind, be sure that you will never escape from His long-reaching hand. We find in verse number 9... If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If there's a place that is desolate and forsaken, a place where you would be far from anyone and all alone, it would be in the middle of the ocean. Or perhaps in the bottom of the ocean. We're told that The deep oceans of our world are more unexplored than outer space. Yet our God is there. He's present. He's there in that place. And what the psalmist points out is, even in that place that seems to be so forsaken and so lonely, even there shall his hand lead me, and his right hand shall hold me. And the idea of that is that God has a concern about me that he's not going to give up on leading and protecting me no matter where I may be. You may in your life feel all alone. You may feel as if you've been forsaken. You may feel as if no one really knows what's going on in your life, but there is one who knows and there is one who cares to lead you in those circumstances. And for this, we can worship him. Then he goes on in verse 11 and says, If I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee. But the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. And the clear implication of his statement in verse 11 and 12 is that even in the darkness of night, the Lord is near and he is able to see. Darkness is nothing to him. He can see in the dark as well as he can see in the light. The darkness to many people is a time of fear. It's a time of uncertainty, a time when you don't know exactly what's going to happen or how the circumstances might be. Somehow when the sun comes up, most things feel better than they did at night. But also the night is a time when people like to perform their acts of wickedness. 
in the darkness, hoping that no one will see, hoping that no one will know what they've been up to. I remind you, in either case, the darkness is like light to our God. He knows all. He's present. He's watching. He he sees these things. And for us, as children of God, it certainly is a consolation to know that even in a season of darkness, of spiritual confusion, perhaps obscurity of the way, the way is not hid from our God. He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly where He's taking us. He knows what is in the path ahead, and He is working to care for us. The Lord knows me. The Lord is with me. Then, number three, the Lord has made me. If there's something that I could help all of our young people understand, it is that you are a unique creation of God. God has made you exactly who you are. He didn't make a mistake. Your personality, the way that you look, the color of your hair, the shape of your eyes, all of those things God designed, and He didn't make a mistake. It's a consolation to us to know that the Lord has made us. In a generation in which we live, where many people are discontented with who they are, And they go to great lengths to change who they are, hoping that someone will accept them. If only they could change. If only they could get their hair a different color. If only they could maybe do something with their face so that they would look younger or older. If only they could change the shape of their body or even inexplicably in our generation, if they could change their gender. If they could just be someone different than who they really are, then perhaps they could be accepted and loved. I want to remind you that God made you exactly the way that you are. He knows everything about you. He didn't make any mistakes. In verse 13, it says, Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. It is God that made my person while I was in my mother's womb. The reins refer to, in particular, the kidneys. Now, he's not talking, I don't think, about the literal kidneys. But in Bible days, they would often speak about the inner organs as the seat of man, as the inner man. They would would talk about those inner organs in the way that we talk about the heart, they would say, you know, those inner organs are really uh, descriptive of the real you. It's interesting that even in the womb, you were developing a personality. You were becoming who you would be. It's always interesting to us. And and obviously, you're limited, right, in, in what you can discern in this way. But it was always interesting to my wife and I, the differences of our children, even in the womb. Some of them were quite feisty in the womb. They were always making her uncomfortable and kicking and carrying on. And some of them were much quieter, more docile. 
They would have differing patterns of when they would be awake and asleep and how they would respond when I would speak and they would hear my voice. You do know that children in the womb can hear, don't you? So he says this, that God possessed my reins and he covered me in my mother's womb. God was superintending the development of my inner man, my personality, who I would become even in the womb. And this idea of being covered in my mother's womb refers to the idea that God was joining me together, that he was putting me together and putting all the pieces together there in the womb, which causes him to say in verse 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. It truly inspires awe and wonder when we think about how we've been made by the Lord's hand. Little things that we take for granted, which are just a marvel of God's engineering, His ingenuity, His creative inspiration. Little things that aren't such little things, like an opposing thumb on your hand, which allows you to grip things and pick them up. The articulating joints in your fingers that allow your fingers to do incredible things like play a piano or a guitar, to turn a bolt, to be involved with working with fine detail to paint or draw a picture. And that's just your hands. And then you think about how all of the organs in your body work together. How even in the womb, God was developing all of those things and he put them all together and they began to work in a great concert together. Your heart starts beating. Very soon after you are conceived, your heart is formed and starts to beat That heartbeat is discernible easily on an ultrasound by the time that child is, what, 11, 12 weeks old. Mm -hmm. You can hear it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that incredible? That same heart, which will eventually grow into obviously a larger organ to power that body that will grow, that same heart is going to beat in the chest of that individual for the most part until they die. Hundreds of thousands and millions of times that heart is going to beat. Scientists would love to figure out how to make parts that last that long without maintenance. All of these things that God puts together, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When you think about your body, oh, I know, we have lots of complaints and things that we don't appreciate and aches and pains and Lord why do I have this problem and that problem I mean just stop for a minute and think what a miracle it is that you're still breathing and having nourishment you're still alive some of you shouldn't be here that would be all of us you do realize that life is a miracle every one of us that is alive is a walking testimony of God's miracle working ability Right from the moment that we were conceived in the womb all the way to the time of death, 
God has fearfully and wonderfully made me. His works are marvelous, and I love what he says, that my soul knoweth right well. What that means is, if you have half a brain, you know you didn't happen by chance. Everybody who thinks about it long enough says, there's no way all of this could have happened by accident. This has to, this requires a designer. I know that there are people who disagree, and I'm not trying to be insulting to them, but the Bible does say that they are willfully ignorant, that they're excusing something which is obvious to anyone who stops and thinks, this, this could not possibly be the result of random chance and process. He goes on in verse 15 and says, My substance was not hid from, me, from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, bear in mind that verse 15 predates ultrasounds and x-rays. Of course, those ancient people knew there were signs that there was a baby that was growing inside the womb of a woman, but they couldn't see with a picture like we can today. But he says this, even in that time, my substance was not hid from thee. God sees it all. Others may not know how or exactly when I was made, but God saw everything. He saw the beginning of life. And further, when he speaks about my substance, he's referring to all the unique combinations that make me, me. All the things that when you see me, you say, I know who that is. And when I see you, I say, I know who that is. All the unique combinations that make me, me, and you, you, God saw it all in the very beginning when you were just being formed in your mother's womb. And he saw it all at a glance. What a wonderful thought. What a, what a tremendously comforting thought to know that God sees it all. And he was involved in that process. In verse 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. And just a reminder that as that child is growing and developing in the womb... Very early on, that child is taking on the features of a human being because that child is a human being from the very beginning. There, there's not some kind of a line where before that it wasn't a human being, but now it became a human being. No, from the very beginning, it's a human being. From the very beginning, it is a life, a special creation of God which is why we were adamantly opposed to the process of abortion. Amen. Because abortion quiets a beating heart, takes the life of, a, of an innocent person who has no defense, the most helpless creatures on the face of the earth, a child in the womb of its mother. And one of the greatest crimes would be to go into that safe place and do harm to that child in that place and then call that somehow a human right to take the life of a child. 
I'm speaking very plainly because this is a tremendous crime that is being foisted upon the minds of people in our generation, causing them to think that this is normal and this is okay to take the life of a child. What a horrible thing. We're finding at this time, scientists who care to find out are telling us that those children whose lives are being snuffed out do experience pain. They do experience fear and terror when their life is being taken. And we ought to be aghast that such a thing would be legal and condoned in our society. It's barbarity. But praise God, nobody did that to me. God saw me. My substance was yet unperfect, but in His book, all my members were written. He knew me even then. He knew how many limbs I would have. He knew the color of my eyes. He knew how tall I would be. He knew everything, every detail about my life. He knew it all. He already knew what I would become. He saw it all at a glance. And the psalmist says this in verse 17 as he thinks about this, as he thinks about his members being fashioned and how he grew in the womb and how God was involved in that process. And he he utters this exclamation in verse 17, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. You see, what he's mesmerized by as he thinks about how God made him, how he was designed by God, he's mesmerized by the thought that God thought about him. Not once or twice or three times, but the thoughts of God towards him are so immense that they cannot be counted. They're like the sand on the shore. Are you going to pick up the grains and count every grain? I think not. He says, this is how much God thinks about me. His thoughts are precious. They're, they're, they're a treasure. They're something that, that we ought to rejoice in, that God thinks upon us. You see, it's not as if God made us and then forgot us, but he thinks upon us. And he thinks upon every one of us, and he knows us intimately. This is a significant truth, because it tells us something about our God. Not only is he an amazing creator, but he is a God who wants to have a relationship with us. And he's looking, and he's watching, and he's calling to us, and he's thinking upon us. Now we come to the last section in verses 19 through 24, and here the psalmist, as he thinks about all that God has done, and he thinks about the thoughts of God towards him, he dwells on this truth. The Lord will judge me. Not just me, but he's going to judge all. He's a righteous judge. And he starts in verse 19 with this statement, surely... Thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. And he 
it's almost like he blurts this out. He goes from an incredibly pleasing idea that God is thinking about him, and then he says, but what about all these wicked people? Now, he's going to tell us why they're wicked in just a moment. But he says, here's what God's going to do. God's going to deal with them. The word he uses is slay, to take their life. The very God who made them will judge them. He will destroy them. Now, this is startling. After all of the positive things that have been said... It's startling to think that God will slay those who are wicked. But realize this this evening that there are consequences to sin. Those who have been made specially and particularly by God and then use their strength and creativity to rebel against God will face that God in judgment one day. And the psalmist says, Lord, I don't even want to be a part of that. I want to be separated from these people who are engaged in this kind of behavior. Verse 20, he says, They speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. What is their crime? They're blaspheming God. They're taking God's name in vain. They who have been made by God are not recognizing the power of God and the worthiness of Him to be worshipped. They're refusing to give God what He deserves In a word, they're not fulfilling the purpose for which God created them, and they will be held to account. In verse 21, the psalmist says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And I know you say, wait a second, pastor, we're not supposed to hate people. But understand what the psalmist is saying. He's so grieved by the sin of these people against the God who has made him and the God that he worships that he cannot countenance the wickedness that they are committing against God. Sin is not a laughing matter. Sin is not something that we should ever get comfortable with. Now, should we care about sinners? We should care about them to the point that we want to see them reconciled to God. But there is coming a day when we will recognize the judgment of God and we will say that is righteous and that is holy. That's exactly what should be done. That's exactly what should take place because these have turned away from the Lord. He says that the sin of those around him causes grief in his mind. He is grieved with those that rise up against the Lord. He doesn't count these as his friend because they are the enemies of God. Then he goes in verse 23 to this thought, and he utters this prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because it's it's true, You know, as you look at the world around you and you say, well, these people are blaspheming the Lord and these people are opposed to God's way of living and these people are going after their own path. Oh, but then when I look in my own heart, I see some some things that look a lot like that. I see some sin in me 
And so the psalmist says, Lord, my life is an open book. I know that you know everything anyway. Search me. The idea isn't that he's afraid maybe God has missed something or he's hoping that God will find something that he's not seen before. The idea is, God, I want you to see it and I want you to show me. Search me. Know me. I want you to see my heart. You and I should want God to search us, to show us any places where we've departed from his way, any places where we've gone astray from his path. God, would you show me? Would you help me to see it? Do you have a heart that's tender to the Lord like that? As a child of God, as one who is a worshiper of the Lord, we can become so incensed at the sin of society around us, but not for a moment allow the searchlight of God's truth to shine into our own heart. We ought to want to know, Lord, I'm going to put this on the altar, this decision. Is, is this what you want me to do? Is this the path that you want me to walk in? Is this the action that you want me to take? Is this the behavior that you want me to have in my life? Is, is this the kind of speech that I should be engaged in? Are these the pursuits that my life should be after? Lord, search me and know me. He does know us. And he is interested in showing us. And the psalmist says, Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to walk in the right path. Our desire ought to be that God would guide us in the path, that He would direct us in His ways, that our life would be being shaped more and more so steadily into the image of Christ. And the reason that we have this desire is because of what we know about Him. Because He knows me. He's with me. He's made me. And He can lead me. He can prepare me for that time when I stand before Him. Tonight, the Lord, I trust, has searched you and known you. And as you've experienced Him searching you and knowing you, may you cry out with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. May God search us and know us. And may His presence be evidenced in our lives.